The power to create a better world for future generations is in our hands. Collectively reinvesting money into clean and sustainable companies is one way we can get there. It ensures money is driving a better future. Make your money matter at australianethical.com.au Hi everyone, you've tuned into part two of our conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you go back and do that as it lays all the groundwork for what he and Barry explore in this episode. If you like what you hear, then grab a copy of our systems change issue of Dumbo Feather magazine with Daniel on the cover. You can get that over at dumbofeather.com forward slash shop or your local newsagent or retail store. Now, here's the rest of the conversation between Barry and Daniel. All right, take us home. Where do we go? We haven't even finished the first part. We were saying there's a bunch of exponential technologies that make much faster risk scenarios that are sitting on top of the cumulative industrial things. There's so much more power in the kind of exponential technologies that anyone that is not really working at developing and deploying those technologies is not going to really direct the future very much. The power is going to be coupled to the technologies. Those who are developing and deploying the technologies right now are not thinking, how do we make the best world for all sentient beings into perpetuity? They're thinking about how to grow the most powerful corporation or nation state. Whatever is outside of that field of concern is where the harm gets externalized. The exponential tech changes the playing field from the previous industrial and even nuclear tech, you didn't have something like Facebook or Google being able to have 3 billion users, which is more than the population of China and Russia and the US and a few other countries combined. So exponential tech radically centralizes power. The Silicon Valley, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook world is basically a new kind of feudalism, like an oligarchic feudalism. Those are exponential tech-empowered companies that become more powerful than countries. The exponential tech is not making democracy stronger. It's really weakening democracies radically. It's making authoritarian states much stronger because it can help coordinate authoritarian state more effectively. The authoritarian state can control the internet, make sure that you don't have very diffuse views, make sure that everyone is getting views that are helpful while still being able to coordinate more people's action. What I would say is neither the authoritarian nation state nor the feudal company have something like participatory governance or the people really having a meaningful say in the law by which they're bound. So I would call those increasingly dystopic central command structures, power that doesn't have any checks and balances on it. On the other side, you have the fact that exponential tech radically decentralizes power, because if you can build cyber weapons in a basement that can take out nation state level infrastructure, or you can build drone weapons in a basement that can, this means you have non-state actors that are hard to monitor that can have as much power as nation states had before, how does the world deal with decentralized catastrophe weapons? So exponential tech decentralizes power in ways that drive catastrophes, centralizes power in ways that can drive dystopias. And all that sitting on top of an increasingly fragile planetary system where cascading collapses become more and more likely. I would say that right now, the attractor of cascading catastrophes and the attractor of increasing dystopias are the primary attractors. Our two choices at the moment are catastrophe or dystopia. We're being driven there. We can see it. We can feel it. And I wanted to talk to you about the third option. Would that be the right question to ask? What is the third option? I wouldn't really call them choices. 
I would call them attractors because nobody is making a central choice to get there. No one is consciously choosing climate change, but it is the result of a collective action problem that even the people who want to not choose it are still contributing to. And no one is really causing a problem directly. They're all giving little micro contributions to a second order effect that doesn't have direct causation to their action. It's the butterfly cut, effect. It's a collective action butterfly effect. If I cut down this tree, it doesn't ruin all the air, but it does provide material benefit for me and my family. I can sell this as lumber and buy us food and whatever. And if I don't cut it down, the atmosphere is not measurably better or worse. And in fact, somebody else will cut it down anyways. Yeah. And so I have all the incentive to cut it down, no incentive to leave it, multiply that by you know, seven to eight billion people and industrial tech. And you see the situation, but no one is choosing, let's fuck the atmosphere. They're choosing, let's advantage our family. So dystopias and catastrophes are the attractor states of collective action problems under the current technology and incentive landscape. We have to realize I don't get to choose a different world system. Culture as a whole or society as a whole would have to do that. And what the fuck is society as a whole? You mean China or the US or the EU? Then I have to say, what choices can I enact that affects the choices of what other agents that can scale to be able to change those attractors? So at first, is there another attractor? Who would have to do what for that to come about? What can I do to help bring that about? Would be moving it from an attractor to a choice. You're saying it in a very relaxed fashion. I would have a slightly more panicked pitch. <laughs> but okay. Okay. Well, yes. So what I would say is good. That means that you aren't a nihilist or a sociopath. When you care and when you panic, when you feel into what you're saying, which is that we're all in that attractor state, we need a collective response. I mean, my intuition is the third option is a massive collective shift has to be so that we change the very dynamic of the thing we are in. When I look up and I see people in their fabulous sneakers on holiday, on Instagram or whatever, just rocking it out like it's 1984 and nothing really matters and just burn, baby, burn. And I just think that looks so fun and I'm caring and they're not caring. So it's that can drive you to nihilism or fatalism where you're like, doesn't matter. Sit on the balcony and watch the apocalypse roll by because so many people don't care on purpose. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If I feel like I can't do anything anyways, so give up care and just self-advantage. And the reason I can't do anything anyways is because so many people are just self-advantaging and have given up care. Then of course, I will now be part of the problem and have zero chance of being part of the solution. Whereas my assessment before that I couldn't do anything was not based on a real assessment. It was based on an emotional reaction, not some formal proof that you've explored the face space of all possible actions. And there is for sure none that you could have. Just to say that again, because I fucking love when you distill things, emotional reaction without proof. I mean, that's a life lesson there. We could stop the podcast and be done with it because <laughs> emotional reaction without proof is like how we all roll most of the time in a reactionary state. We're not proving our thoughts, in fact, without increasing outrage. We're just verifying yeah. our intuitions and our believies and our little feelings, even big feelings have the feeling and then test it and workshop it. Our big feelings are not proof of something. It's a both and. Have the feeling and then test it and workshop it. So I know that's where you're going to take us. I mean, this is where Buddhist mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy or Byron Katie's The Work or various ways of being able to notice the thoughts, notice the emotional reaction associated with the thoughts and then test them. Are there other hypotheses that could be true? How do you react when you believe these thoughts? These are things that are quite helpful. 
because someone's felt sense of certainty about a thing and the trueness of the thing have pretty much no correlation. I think the quote, the smartest and most nuanced and sophisticated thinkers being filled with so much uncertainty and the least nuanced thinkers being filled with so much righteousness and sanctimony and the problem of the world with that. The leader that you want is the reluctant one. This is a central message in the Tao Te Ching. Should be a top of the reading list for everybody if it's not 81 short verses. If someone is nihilistic, meaning there is no sense of meaningfulness, then it is rational to be hedonist. Because if there is nothing meaningful, then just optimize pleasure. Just prima facie, because it's more fun than not. If someone doesn't feel that they know how to use their agency in any meaningful way, hedonism and even removing all the ethical bindings and sociopathic hedonism can be a rational and at least intellectually consistent way of responding to that. There is a certain kind of faith that is quite relevant, which is the faith that there might be solutions that are completely outside of the scope of shit that you can even imagine. That isn't the kind of faith that leads you to not act and just say, oh, it'll happen by divine providence. It's the kind of faith that leads you to be an inventor or an innovator or discoverer that is working to find what that thing is. I fucking love it. Yes. Okay. Third option. So if we have increasing power through technology, and it's important to understand that all the catastrophic risks that we face that are human-induced. So of course, there are solar flares and asteroids and supervolcanoes that are not human-induced, but even those have the ability to be human-modulated. But most of the risks I'm looking at are human-induced. So they're all the result of technology because people with stone tools just can't blow the world up. It takes getting to the level of nukes before you have the capability to, in short order, blow the world up. And before that, the level of industrial technology where you can make a world system that is cumulatively depleting the world's capacity to continue to support us. So it's fair to say, or it's one way to think about it, is that technology has followed an exponential curve of increase in capacity and power, the total amount of extension of human choice that can happen. And obviously, the extension of my ability to catch a fish with my hands to with a fishing hook to a mile-long drift net takes us well outside of being an apex predator or any part of the ecosystem, takes us to being something that is radically debasing the substrate that we depend upon. And similarly, the extension of my fist to a spear, to a gun, to a nuclear-equipped missile, to a whole superpower military is an extension of that same type of choice-making capacity. So when you see that we are extincting species at scale, we're genetically engineering new species, we're actually making synthetic life, we're making synthetic intelligence. We are the primary geological force on the planet right now, the Anthropocene, where the human-built world is affecting the surface of the earth more than geological forces, that there is more animal biomass in factory farms than in nature. So we have the technological power of gods, and it's not like apex predators. It's much more like the way one would think of gods, but we don't have the kind of wisdom and prudence to wield that power well. The kind of poetic way of thinking about the thing that I care about a lot is, what does it take for us to be safe stewards of the amount of power that exponential tech portends? That's an individual and it's a collective question. So how do we develop individuals and develop societies that make choices that factor second, third, fourth, fifth order effects, and that are able to not just have some people do that, but to be able to bind the multipolar traps where anybody does the messed up thing that would require everyone else to do similar. That now becomes obligate. Either we develop the ability to bind its catastrophic and dystopic potentials. The dystopias are ways of binding it that are also ways of binding life too much. And so what we're wanting is how do you gain something that can bind the catastrophic power while not also binding life excessively? 
which would mean things like healthy versions of individual sovereignty. So you're saying the third option is ahead of us. There is no answer. You're currently working on some answers. We can talk about the criteria of what it must be, right? It must be able to check the power of exponential tech so it doesn't drive catastrophes while having checks and balances on its own power system so it doesn't become corrupt, dystopic, or captured. Another way of thinking about it is you can think of civilization as a way of creating coordination or order between lots of people that otherwise want different things and believe different things and would naturally orient towards a tribal size, right? For 300,000 something years of human history, we mostly never got towards groups larger than about 150 where you could know everybody. They could know you well. There was an advantage of having those more people. But beyond that, I don't want to sacrifice that much for anonymous people that I don't know. I don't want to get to a group so large that I don't have a say in the things that I'm bound by. Right. So then civilization at a scale larger than that is how do we bring some kind of order in the behavior about so that the benefits of civilization get to continue and bind the damage? Either we don't bring order about and we get too much violence and chaos and the thing breaks, or we bring order about by imposing it, in which case we get something that is totalitarian or limiting of human sovereignty and freedom. So you have this imposition or chaos spectrum. Civilizations can die on either side of it, excessive oppression or excessive chaos. Or the order has to be emergent rather than imposed. And insofar as there is imposition like rule of law, the government derives its capacity by the consent of the governed. And the collective values of the people get expressed through some kind of participatory governance to turn into the rule of law, which is the basis of how that imposition or monopoly of violence gets directed to protect the will of the people. So we're just at the end of a story that's been playing out for a long time and then we're layering it with new things that it never could have had the capacity to deal with. But you're saying this third option, which we need lots of brilliant minds and hearts and hands on, we can still deploy these foundational values and principles. We can still ask these questions. We must. So if you're saying a foundational kind of principle or value of how do we bring about emergent order? How do we have a system where we bind people's behavior to not do the really sucky things, maximizing overall freedoms as much as possible, which means that we're developing people who mostly don't want to do the really terrible things and having the incentive landscapes in such a way where individual freedom and agency can be expressed while our collective responsibility to each other is also expressed. That idea that the individual sovereignty and the collective responsibility are well paired in the nature of how the society works and that the order in the society is fundamentally emergent more than imposed, and where imposed, that system is checked and balanced by an emergent process. That's the essence of when we think about democracy, not voting on representatives or any shit like that, just process is emergent. That still is fundamentally the thing that needs to happen, but a 21st century version of it looks very different than a industrial era version of it. I know it's not funny, that what you just said is really profound, but the vision that came to my mind was Mel Brooks in History of the World Part 1 when he comes down from God on the mountain and he's got, I bring you 15, and he drops one of the tablets. Ten. Ten commandments. <laughs> it just makes me think about how we've been trying to do this. We've been trying to organise ourselves with that tension between the individual wants, needs and expression and the collective's needs. Well, this is actually a place that's philosophically interesting and connected to something you said earlier. What is unique to the being human thing relative to the rest of animals and the rest of life? Obviously, there's a lot that's the same between humans and the rest of animals, and it's really important to understand that because it gives us a basis for shared empathy. The ability to suffer is not a uniquely human capacity. 
the ability for pain, pleasure, emotion is not uniquely human capacities. The ability for abstract representation, particular types of abstract representation does seem like a pretty unique human capacity. The chimpanzee will use a rock to cut something that it can tell is sharp. It'll find that another rock experientially cuts it faster. It'll use that one, but it doesn't make a sharper stone tool because in order to make a sharper stone tool, it has to understand what does this sharp rock and this sharp rock have in common? That is the abstract principle of sharpness that is neither of these. And how can I make something that has more of it? That was something on the other side of chimps. That sapiens got more complexity. That abstract representation led to tool making. It also led to language, symbolic representation of the world, which allowed us to coordinate a lot more. Would have also led to things like the capacity to understand how fire worked as opposed to just watch it and be able to engineer and utilize. It. And then obviously the rest of technology, the civilization systems. What is the driver that all the problems have in common? One way of saying it is an evolutionary imperative empowered by abstract representation. The evolutionary imperative before abstract representation, the rest of life, there's rivalry that occurs, right? There's clearly rivalry between a predator and a prey, where if the prey gets away, the predator might die. If the predator catches it, the prey definitely dies. There's a lot of cooperation and symbiosis in nature, but there are also competitive zero-sum elements. There's this very interesting question of like, why is it that this lion chasing this gazelle, they're in a zero-sum situation, but lions and gazelles as a whole are symbiotic as species. The fastest gazelles get away, the slower lions die off. The, the lions and the gazelles are actually evolving each other. So how is it that micro-rivalry leads to macro-symbiosis is a very interesting question. It has to do with the fact that there is the symmetry in the evolutionary rivalry between them. The gazelles get away as often as the lions catch them. And even between the lions competing for the mating opportunity or the food or whatever, there is a symmetry where apex lion is not five times more lethal than median lion. It's barely more lethal. But as we look at what's happening in Ukraine today, Putin is not barely more lethal than I am. He's millions of times more lethal than I am. This is a radical asymmetry in game theoretic capacity within the species. And obviously, our species is radically asymmetric relative to all other species and even the biosphere itself. Gazelle and the lion both only get a little bit faster through evolutionary mutation, and they're both undergoing the same mutation pressures, and then co-evolutionary selection is occurring. We were able to increase our evolutionary advantage through toolmaking because of the abstract representation way faster than anything else could increase its resilience or competitive advantage to that. Are you saying we decoupled ourselves from evolutionary symmetry? Correct. But we kept the evolutionary imperative, which is get ahead for us, right? Right. Okay. The rivalrous imperative, but we broke the symmetry. With that, the micro rivalries don't lead to macro symbiosis. They end up leading to instability of the system as a whole. So obviously, we are extincting species in a way no other species extincts other species. We're able to overhunt an environment, then rather than our population starting to die down to a steady state, we can move to another environment. We can start farming the animals. We can start looking at how do we mine asteroids once we've ruined this planet. So the, the abstract representation that's unique to being human is also the thing that we have to learn how to be responsible with collectively differently. I love that. I was talking with a friend about it today. That That's one way of thinking about what was the tree of knowledge that was going to be the fall from Eden. And if you think about it as knowledge, meaning knowledge with a lowercase k, the knowing, the nameable is based on breaking reality into identifiable parts and then being able to model the parts. So I can make a tool that increases specific capacities decoupled from the rest. I can make a plier that extends the capacity of my grip or a hammer that extends the capacity of my fist. 
It's because I was able to break things into parts, extend those parts, where evolution is doing a very different process that is a much more decentralized computation across the entire biosphere that ends up tending to the orderly complexity of the whole system. So there's something like a different kind of abstract representation, which is also like ethics and the basis of law that we need to be able to bind the abstract representation that gives us power. We've been trying to solve for this for thousands of years. We've been increasingly trying to solve for this. Well, yes. And we can see all of our civilization systems as different kinds of solutions. But obviously, the civilization system that has more total power wins game theoretically in war, warfare or population growth over the one that does a better job. So you can get a Tibet that is relatively peaceful, the relatively steady state population. But of course, a China is going to take it out when it needs the watershed. We're an aberration. Like why we would have decoupled from evolutionary symmetry, whatever. We're meant to be here. I'll be Buddhist about it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We are a part of nature. We're a lot like other parts of nature in a lot of ways, but we're also different in really critical ways that we have to understand because if we don't take an obligation associated with that difference, then we will self-terminate. I was talking to an Aboriginal friend in Australia, Tyson Nyungkaporta, and he was saying that some of the oldest stories that his people told were that as soon as the stone tool was invented, and I'll let him tell this properly, I get wrong, but as soon as the stone tool was invented, the animal spirits came to the people and said, we're turning stewardship of the biosphere over to you now because you've developed this kind of capacity. If you continued to use it not as stewards, you'd ruin everything. So with that capacity comes a stewardship and the people understood, oh yeah, stone tools turn into Bronze Age tools and Iron Age tools and then nuclear tools and exponential tech tools. And that if you keep doing that arms race, externalizing harm all the way along and you know exponential externalities and exponential warfare stop being able to work on a finite planet and that prescient enough people could have just realized that and that stone tool said, we're going to work to create steady state in our own population and to be stewards. Now, this might be a over-romanticism. I don't know. I don't know the history of it, but it's a really nice idea. It's a nice story that someone could recognize with that power came a responsibility. Now, of course, even if that was true, some other group that gets that ability doesn't hold that, grows their population really big and then needs to come take those guys' resource. There's a kind of evolution that selects for the short-term successfully dominating thing even if long-term that thing self-terminates in the same way that cancer cells can be very successful at replicating and that there's the most number of cancer cells right before they kill the body and they all die. They're in the process of their own short-term self-interest, even though they self-terminate in the process. Okay. It's uncomfortable talking to you because I have 7,000 more questions and the 7,000 more questions that just emerged were around our maturity, our capacity. It takes an inquiring mind and the right conditions usually to understand our role in the arc of time. I'm going to radically oversimplify, but okay, great. with the nuclear weapons, we had to keep the superpowers from having kinetic war. And we'd never had to keep the major powers from having kinetic war. So a new world system had to emerge to do that and it involved several major elements. Part of it was a global monetary system and that could facilitate global trade And the global trade and the radically interconnected global supply chains, part of that was, I don't want to bomb my own supply chain. So if we all depend upon technologies that require six continents to make, we have a disincentive for war because we have an economic incentive to keep each other doing something that we all depend on. That's kind of smart, right? We think badly of globalism oftentimes and want more local, sustainable stuff, but local closed loop removes the disincentive to war. And so there's a trade-off. 
The other thing was the ability to financialize the system to be able to support more rapid growth. So you could have exponential growth. So everybody could get more without having to take each other's stuff. If you can radically expand the total pie, everybody can get more without having that war. Of course, that's not an evenly distributed more. And everyone doesn't have a desire for more that they're willing to wage war for. But the radically interconnected world, as good as it was to say through the supply chains, let's not be motivated to bomb each other, also creates radical fragilities where collapses in some area can cascade to collapses everywhere. And so we saw something happens in Wuhan. Now it affects the whole world. You have to shut down supply chains. Locusts are taking out the crops in parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa because those areas don't have their own pesticides. And we just shut down the supply chains and move the pesticides or don't have their own fertilizers. So we got crop loss. So the interconnectedness and interdependency of the world also leads to fragilities. And those are increasing fragilities. The exponential growth of the economy also drove all the planetary boundaries and environmental issues because the exponential growth of the currency had to mean of goods and services, which fundamentally ground and extracting stuff from the earth and turning it into pollution and waste. And so you can't keep running an exponential monetary system connected to a real world forever. And the other key part of that post-World War II system was a deterrent system for using the weapon, right? Mutual assured destruction. But at the time, we had two superpowers and one catastrophe weapon that could be fully monitored that was really hard to make. It's hard to get uranium. You can monitor it from satellites, takes nation state capacity to enrich it. With the exponential tech where any country and even non-state actors can get catastrophe weapons, how do you do mutual assured destruction? Super hard. You have to do it a really different way. So this is why I say for all of those reasons, that kind of post-World War II system coming to an end. And a new world system has to be in place because we still have catastrophic capability and we can't let large-scale war happen. Small things could lead to large-scale war or even unintended things like climate change making a world that no one can inhabit isn't really the problem right away. Climate change making a world that makes some areas uninhabitable leading to human migration. There are already very few places that want to deal with refugees. When you start dealing with very, very large-scale human migration... The people don't just die peacefully if they can't be taken in. So do you get resource wars? Do those resource wars ever happen in already politically tense areas, pull larger actors into them? Do any of those people in that disenfranchised position have access to technologies, to drones, to cyber technologies, to biotechnologies? So this is where you can start to get scaled issues with not just a couple actors playing, but even nature changing the thing and lots of other actors playing. We have a situation where we have to deal with all of that. And we can't keep having the exponential growth of the economy be the answer. The breakdown of the old system will either look like the breakdown of stability and more war and chaos and whatever, or the emergence of a new, better system. Exactly what that is, we don't know. Obviously, there are lots of different actors that have different ideas of how they want it to be. What we can start to say is, what are the criteria of what it would have to be to prevent catastrophes and do it in a way where the capacity to do that didn't become dystopic control states? What I love is that it's emergent and that the call out is that if you have the capacity to lean into what that emergence is and have all that layered thinking when approaching the solutions, it's now. I know that you work with people who are thinking about this stuff. The point is to be thinking about this stuff. And someone said to you once, we've reached the end of or the limits of cognitive capacity. And you were talking about if you took yourself back to the 1930s, how to split an atom was beyond the limits of cognitive capacity at that time. And you proposed something incredible in that conversation, which was that we need to invest in cognitive complexity. We need to stay in a space where we're investing in how do we solve for these multipolar trap issues, where we're 
not heading into overwhelm. So is anyone investing in that complexity, in those questions? Is there a Manhattan Project? Yeah. Is there a Manhattan Project? For each different threat, whether it's the threats that cyber attacks make possible or bioweapons or whatever, all of the competent governments of the world are working to create resilience to those. And lots of companies are. There are groups that are working on environmental issues and climate change. And there are groups thinking about donut economics or new economic thinking. There are some groups working on what could radical changes in culture. Could we have a new metamodern enlightenment? So there are a lot of good things happening. So we're at a dinner party and it's the end of the dinner. And it's one of those conversations that could go till four in the morning. I know you've had a long day. What should I leave with? It's not the first time in the world that people have faced a situation that could be catastrophic. In fact, all of the previous empires, for the most part, don't still exist. The previous civilizations mostly did die catastrophically, either through environmental destruction or wars or internal kind of infighting or something. So the collapse of civilization is not a new thing. That's actually the precedent. We just never had a global civilization before. And in some way, we have a U.S. civilization and a Chinese one, an Australian one. But really, since they all depend upon six continent supply chains and since we have the ability not just to affect the topsoil in one area, but to affect the quality of oceans and atmosphere for the whole planet and weapons that can affect everything. The fact that civilizations go through life cycles and die, but we have a fully globalized civilization, we're both facing something that humans have faced before and that is totally novel. And there's a seriousness in that based on how one internalizes it that can just make you go numb or overwhelmed or scared. It can also be really inspiring that there's more at stake that matters than there ever has been. And one of the other things about exponential tech is much smaller groups can have much larger impacts. There's a pretty small number of people that initiated making a Facebook or a Google that then ended up affecting the topology of the whole world. So I think the possibility of being able to contribute at greater scale and with more consequences, I find that inspiring. I also find something like a sense of obligation in it. Yeah, it's the time to show up. So then, okay, well, how do I continue to tend to the obligations that are already mine? And how do I continue to learn more and increase my capacities so that I can show up to the uniqueness of this time progressively better? You're amazing. Thank you. It was really lovely speaking with you. You know, we're just talking here at a very high level. There are things that need to happen in the level of culture. There are things that need to happen in the level of our social systems and institutions. There are things that need to happen in our technology and infrastructure that collectively inter-influence each other to drive virtuous cycles. There's near-term triage stuff that has to happen to prevent the nearest-term catastrophic risks to buy time. There's transitional stuff that needs to occur to work with the institutions as they are and vector them in the right direction. And there's long-term stuff that involves kind of ground-up redesign that meets the right criteria that has to happen, all those things simultaneously. There are people that I work with, and there are things that we're working towards that need a lot more support. So if there are people who are interested in engaging and have real capacities, then let me know. And yeah, happy to be here with you and get to talk today. Thank you, Daniel. If you were listening, you heard the call out, you can get to us at dumbofeather.com and smallgiants.com.au. That concludes our epic two-part conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger of Civilization Emerging and the Consilience Project. Check out those websites for more resources and tools on all of the topics that have been discussed. 
If you want to sit with this conversation and read it and write notes all over the text, then grab a copy of Dumbo Feather Issue 69, which features this chat and many more useful stories and conversations for creating systemic changes at this crucial moment in history. Thanks to our partners, Australian Ethical, for supporting this episode of the podcast. They harness the power of your money to create real change for people, planet and animals while growing your portfolio. You can learn more about them at australianethical.com.au. Now, to finish, I wanted to share one of the verses in the Tao Te Ching, which Daniel references in the conversation. This one is, is verse 29, so I'll just leave you with it. It goes, Do you want to rule the world and control it? I don't think it can ever be done. The world is a sacred vessel, and it cannot be controlled. You will only make it worse if you try. It may slip through your fingers and disappear. Some are meant to lead, and others are meant to follow. Some must always strain, and others have an easy time. Some are naturally big and strong, and others will always be small. Some will be protected and nurtured, and others will meet with destruction. The master accepts things as they are, and out of compassion, avoids extravagance, excess, and extremes. <laughs>